Thank you for listening to this podcast and message from the Garden Fellowship. The Garden Fellowship is a new and exciting church located in Burlington, North Carolina. We invite you to learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org. Now, we invite you to worship God through the teaching of His Word. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, they were returning. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, They were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you and in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So there you have it. There is a passage of Scripture that um, we often have read and marveled at and sort of kept on going because it says some things to us that, quite quite frankly, are beyond our ability to fully grasp, um, even in the Spirit. But let's take a look at, at what is going on here. This is, as you probably are aware of, this is the only account that we have in any of the Gospels of anything in Jesus' life between His birth and his baptism as he enters into his adult ministry. This is the only episode that we have of anything in that 20-year period. And so our information is rather sparse, obviously, of Jesus' early youth. And whenever, whenever I think we have a person that accomplishes a lot, be it just a, just a famous person, a successful person, isn't there always a tendency to kind of want to know what their youth was like? To want to know how they grew up, what were some of the influences, how did they become the person that they are? And when we come to the story of Jesus, then we have only this to tell us. Now, by the way, this is one of those episodes in the Scripture, one of many times that Scripture, I think, affirms its own truthfulness to us. And it's beautiful how it does this. Because think about this. If you were writing a story about some supernatural person and you were making this stuff up, would you make this up? This is not exactly what you would make up to describe the youth of someone that you were concocting or maybe even just sort of embellishing. This would not be at all what you came up with because this is not exactly the picture of a supernatural young man that holds the power of creation at his fingertips. You know, we, we find a lot of those things. If, if we 
and I'm sure you guys are well enough aware of all the History Channel sort of Gospels of Thomas and all this sort of thing. These, uh, there's many of them. There's, there's, there's a lot of writings about Jesus that were written two, three, four, five hundred years after his life. That uh, the, every year at Christmas and Easter, the History Channel just loves to pick up those balls and run with it and say, "Oh, the lost Gospel of Thomas and the lost Gospel of Mary Magdalene and all this sort of thing." Those false writings, written centuries after Jesus, by the way, those false writings have plenty of those kinds of stories in them. And they are extraordinarily fanciful and quite frankly, very much unbelievable. Just a couple of those stories that sort of stand out in my mind. I think it's the Gospel of Thomas has a story of Jesus as a young boy. A friend of his has a pet bird that dies and Jesus brings it back to life and just restores her to happiness by healing her pet bird. And there's uh, there's another there's another story not from the Gospel of Thomas I think it's from the Arabian infancy gospel um, that tells of Jesus. Back in those days, there would be the town would have a person that was called the town dyer d y e r, and their role in life their position was that they had a shop and their shop had all kinds of pigments and everything and you'd bring cloth to them and pay them and they would dye your cloth whatever color you might want and so jesus goes to the town dyer who happens to be out to lunch or something and jesus mixes all of his dyes together to make one big brown blob of dye and the dyer comes back and he's just aghast oh i can't believe you've done this you've ruined me i'm I've uh, lost my respect in the town and all this. And, and Jesus says, well, what? give me some cloth. What color do you want this cloth to be? And the dyer hands him some cloth and he dips it into the brown goo and it comes out exactly the color that he asked for and he does another one. And it's just like, really? That's the Son of God? Yeah, no, I don't think so. This story, like like many others, the Bible lends itself to our belief by being realistic to us and not telling us some sort of fanciful story about an eight-year-old boy that goes around healing pet gerbils. Instead, what this presents to us is a story that's packed with theological meaning, fully uh, believable, even though parts of it stretch our understanding of uh, of the, the Son of God. So, as we look at this, be reminded that this is an affirmation for us of uh, the truthfulness. Of the, of the passage. So let's, let's just kind of walk through it again as, as is our custom from verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. Once again, we are just bombarded by Luke with, throughout this whole, these two first chapters of this idea of the keeping of the law, the respect of the law, the love that Jesus' family and even the boy Jesus have for the law because repeatedly we are we're given a picture of Jesus as an infant and as a young person as a person has great respect for the law and loves the law and keeps the law here we see uh, Jesus and his parents every year we're told Luke says that they go to the feast of Passover now Jewish males of this time they were required by uh, the law of God to attend three feasts in Jerusalem a year and those three feasts were Pentecost, Tabernacles, and 
uh, Passover. And Jewish males, Jewish men, were required to attend these. They were only in Jerusalem. You couldn't celebrate Passover anywhere other than Jerusalem. You had to journey to Jerusalem to do that. And you were supposed to do that once a year. Over time, attending three festivals a year in Jerusalem came to be seen as a real burden for people. And so over time, it just gradually got reduced to one long festival, the festival of Passover. And so Joseph and Mary are, are shown here attending every year the festival of Passover. Now, Mary didn't have to attend. The family didn't have to attend according to the law. Only Joseph did. But the family is shown as going and attending the festival of Passover to keep the law. We're shown this picture of a family that willingly, joyfully keeps the law of God. And I think the reason for this, we've talked about this before, but let's just make sure before we leave this, let's just make sure that we see where Luke is tracking with Theophilus. As I'm reading Luke's two books, one thing I'm picturing in my mind is this sort of conversation between Theophilus and Luke. I would imagine that Luke eventually gives what he's written to Theophilus in person. But I would also imagine that Luke doesn't just sort of, here you go. But I would imagine that they spend some time and they sort of go through it together and they flesh it out together and they meet for coffee and they meet for, for, for lunch and they just sort of work through what Luke has said. And I can imagine this conversation between Theophilus and Luke kind of going like this where Theophilus says, let me kind of get this straight. This person was put to death. He was strung up onto a tree by those people who are the most zealous law keepers of your faith. So how does all that work out? He, he, he must have been a person that was a hater of their law. No, 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 no. That's not it at all, Theophilus. He was a lover of the law. It was his law. He was a passionate keeper of the law. Those who put him to death were not passionate keepers of the law for the sake of God. They were passionately in love with the law. And they were following a perverted, a distorted following of the law. And so that's how all that came about. But don't think for one minute, Theophilus, that this man was not a lover and a respecter of the Jewish law. And so I think that that's, that's really what Luke has culminated here in the first two chapters is this grand picture of a person who, far from being a disrespecter of the law, was a full keeper of the law. So here we see Joseph and the family and Mary, Jesus uh, going up yearly to the festival of, pa of Passover. And then verse 42, when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. So 12, as you're probably aware of, was a big deal in the life of a Jewish boy. It was the point that you, you went from boyhood to manhood, bar mitzvah. You became a son of the commandment, a son of the command. And so you, after that point, were considered a person responsible for keeping the law in your own heart and in your own life. Uh, it was a big deal for a Jewish boy to turn 12. And so Jesus is now turning 12 this year, and he goes with them. Uh, verse 43, And when the feast was ended, as they were returning... The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, and then they began to search for him along with their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. So here's this episode where the family leaves. They get 
a day's journey back to Nazareth. They've walked a day. Raise your hand if you've walked a day. I have. That's a long day of walking. So they walk a day, and then they realize that Jesus is not with us, that we have um, overlooked Him, we have forgotten Him. I don't know if you are like me, that I cannot read this passage without this coming to mind. <laughs> the ultimate home alone, right? Jesus is home, home alone. Ah, we forgot Jesus. It's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to get your mind around. First of all, it's hard to get your mind around parents that don't notice that they've forgotten their son for an entire day, especially as they're leaving a big city. Seems like one of the top things to sort of check off as you're loading the camels and loading the donkeys, you know. Uh, Jesus, do we have our eldest son? But they nevertheless they they miss him. And so I've struggled to kind of understand, were Mary and Joseph just really absent-minded parents? Were they bad parents? Was Is this just a really negative reflection upon them? He was a really reliable child, I'm sure. I think that's part of it. I think that, that well, when we haven't heard from our kids in 15 minutes, then there's trouble brewing. All right? if, if we haven't heard somebody cry or scream or shout in 15 or 20 minutes, then something's wrong. So uh, perhaps this is a reflection of Jesus' trustworthiness, that, that perhaps he was such a trustable young boy that they didn't think twice about him not being seen. I think also part of it is it, it, was, a, it was a dramatically different social culture in that day. It was much more this idea of, of community parenting. We sort of hear people talk about that today, and we live in a day in which that has gone completely by the wayside. Um, when I was younger, sort of the last vestiges of it were still around. When I was younger, any adult in the church could discipline me. And, I, and, and my parents were completely okay with that. That when I was at church, any adult there could, could take me aside and discipline me. My parents were, were okay with that. But that was sort of the last sort of traces of it. If you go way back... Past generations, way, way back. Julie, you probably remember this. Way, way back. It, it really used to be this thing of, of any adult in the community could and should discipline your parents when, when they saw them or discipline your children when they saw them. <laughs> and so it was, it was this idea of, um, you know, there wasn't the danger of some sort of pedophile snatching you off the streets. There was, there was, Jerusalem was still a dangerous place. I'm sure there was a big danger of being robbed if you had anything on you of any value in Jerusalem, but it wasn't a danger of just being sort of snatched up and that sort of thing. If you've ever lost a child, then you know that we live in a different... Diff I lost a child recently. Meredith's not in here, so I can tell this. I lost a child recently at a, at a Durham Bulls game. And it was literally... I mean, it was... It was Josie, and we were we were standing there. I was holding hands, looking up at a menu. We we're going to get some food, and I mean, literally let go to get wallet. I mean, it was four seconds and gone. Just and what happened? I mean, looking back on it, what happened it had to be that in that moment he saw somebody walk by that he thought was me, and he ran after who he thought was me. 
But I mean, literally, it was like seconds and, and it just vanished. And it, it, he was probably gone 45 or 60 seconds, maybe. But it was just like an eternity. Was, and, and you know the thoughts that are that are going through your mind. You know, I'm, I'm like, close the gates, lock the doors. You know? But the terror from just a minute. Jesus is missing a day. And they haven't noticed it yet. But certainly a different age and a different time. But I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe they were distracted by the festival. They're just leaving. There was sort of this religious euphoria. And maybe they just were absent-minded. But in any case, a, a, a day passes. They realize He's not there. Now they've walked a day away from the city. Now they've got to walk a day back to the city. And they spend a day, apparently, a, or part of a day, most of a day, searching for Jesus. And they finally find Him. In the temple, we don't know where they were searching, if they were in the Jerusalem Chick-fil-A looking for him there or something. But they, they obviously the first place they go was not the temple. They go other places looking for him, and then they finally locate him in the temple. And then there's this sort of um, there's this sort of rebuke, so to speak. Jesus' parents rebuking him, and then there's this sort of rebuke, this gentle rebuke backwards, back towards them. So let's kind of let's th- think through this a little bit. So um, from verse um, 45, they they when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I, hear that? Your father and I, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress, literally in pain. We've been searching for you in pain. So, uh, you know, Luke never puts any words in Joseph's mouth. Luke gives us the picture of Joseph as sort of the strong, quiet type. You know, Mary takes the front and center, your father and I. And here's Joseph, probably apparently not saying anything. But... Uh, we don't hear from Joseph after this, except for in chapter 3, he's mentioned in the genealogy, but we don't hear Joseph is done in the story of, of Luke. So here's Mary, and she's quite upset, obviously, and um, we see what Jesus is doing. He's sitting in the, in the temple. We don't know if he's, has he been there all three days? And what did the teachers think? Here's a boy that, if he has been in the temple all three days, assuming he has, Here's a 12-year-old boy that's been here three days. Where's this boy sleeping? What's he eating? Where's his parents? All kinds of things in this passage just make me go, I don't know. I mean, what what were the teachers doing? And the questions and everything. Okay, so we'll get to that. But anyway, we see this phrase here, verse 47, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. You know how everybody has favorite words? You ever notice that you have favorite words? And... When you talk and you're describing certain things, you always tend to use the same words. And if you listen to people, if you listen to preachers, you know all their favorite words and everything. We all have favorite words that we use. Luke, when you read your Bibles, you will start to notice, even through the translation, you you can start to notice that the biblical writers had favorite words too. One of Luke's favorite words is amazed. And when he uses this word, it always seems to be in connection to Someone who has seen something miraculous. Throughout Luke and throughout Acts, he will use that word 
And it, and it, it's virtually always connected with somebody who has seen a miracle happen. Here's a few examples for us. From uh, This is back from chapter 2. This is the shepherds. And all who heard the shepherds were amazed at what the shepherds told them. Or from chapter 8. And her parents were amazed that she was raised from the dead, obviously. So from chapter 8. Then we look uh, forward to chapter 24. Some of our women in our company amazed us as they told us the story of what they saw at the tomb. Or um, later on in Acts chapter 2, this is right after Pentecost. And all were amazed and perplexed at what they had heard the different languages spoken. And so we could we could continue tracing that. But Luke seems to have fixated on this word amazed and he uses it to describe a human reaction to something miraculous. Here it is two times. They were amazed at his understanding and answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. Same word. They were astonished, amazed at what they have seen and heard. So we sort of see Luke is setting us up to see that this wasn't just a an attentive 12-year-old. This wasn't just a well-mannered 12-year-old that was just asking good questions and politely listening. There was something about his attentiveness and probing questions and maybe his follow-up questions and even some of his answers. There was something about that that the people said, this is not a normal 12-year-old boy. This is something... Miraculous. Yes, sir. I didn't know us in the Gospels. He usually... Well, he does that as an adult. Um, I don't get the sense here that Jesus is testing these religious leaders. I get the sense, because Luke goes on to specifically tell us of how he grows in wisdom, grows in understanding, grows in favor with God. So I'm treating this as a growth opportunity that Jesus was taking. He wasn't necessarily putting the religious leaders on the test he was i think he was probing them he was he was learning from them he was asking them questions that that he had later on as an adult especially in John's gospel he's going to use that tactic he's going to sort of put them on the defensive yes ma'am i was thinking about that as well yes that's the other thing is they were amazed at his answers one thing that i asked the text asked myself as i'm reading the text is could some of these teachers have been the same ones that 20 years later were shouting for his crucifixion. And if so, I think we can see how they were probably more willing to sort of be pressed, be challenged with some challenging questions from a 12-year-old boy than from an adult. We, we do the same sort of thing. You know, when, we, when, um, when we're explaining things of a spiritual nature, or when we're explaining anything to children, then there's more leeway given, I think, than, than with adults. So perhaps the religious leaders, they're, they're hearing these questions from Jesus that they've never heard before. Perhaps Jesus is pressing them, um, this is speculation here, but perhaps he's pressing them on the fact that the Messiah must be a suffering Messiah. And we know that that's not something that the Jewish people had latched onto by any means. Just the opposite was the case. So perhaps he's pressing them with that and perhaps they're more willing to entertain that because he's a boy thinking, oh, he'll grow out of this foolishness than when he was a man. We don't know. Perhaps some of the teachers later became to believe him. And we, we don't know. But I do get the sense here that Jesus is not just 
playing with them. He is not just sort of going through the routine. I get the sense here that he's, he's learning, that he, he is attached to their answers, and perhaps he's even working some of this out in his own mind. He is, obviously he sought them out. When his parents leave the city and he stays behind, they don't, I don't I probably not, they don't depart from the temple. He has to go and seek them out and seek out the teachers. So, so look at what Jesus has done here. He has sought out the teachers. He listens. He questions. And he answers. He seeks out the teachers. He listens. He questions. And he answers. The, the difficulty of the passage is that this is the incarnate Word learning about the Word. And that itself should blow your mind. But after you get beyond that, wrestle with the idea of, of Jesus being a person who wants to grow in His understanding of God and in His grasp, His knowledge of God. There is a former seminary professor that if I said his name, you'd recognize his name. He has said that of all the seminary students he has taught, he would estimate one out of ten of those seminary students want to progress in their knowledge of God beyond where they already are. That one out of ten have a desire to grow beyond where they are in their understanding of God. Not So nine out of ten would be satisfied with where they are. And I can, I can relate to that, having been in that context a few times. I can relate to, to the difference between pursuing knowledge about God so that your understanding of Him is increased as versus pursuing understanding of God so that your position is bolstered. You see the difference? Pursuing knowledge of God so that your understanding is made more complete or pursuing knowledge of God so that your position is strengthened, so that you know how to utilize arguments more effectively. And there's a difference. There's a big difference. And so this professor, this particular professor, I think I would agree with him, would say he has encountered one out of ten who are truly wanting their understanding of God to be challenged, to be prodded, to be grown, perhaps even in a different direction than they thought it would be. And I think from, from my experience, I think that I, I could agree with that and expand it e- even into the church to say, I think that may not be far off. That maybe one out of ten professing Christians have a desire that their understanding of God be truly shaped to a more perfect level by the Scriptures as opposed to we're good with our understanding of God. Yeah, we like to come together and sing songs and worship and say amen. And, but we're really not interested in being challenged. We're really not interested in our knowledge of God being continued in a direction that um, is challenging for us and, and actually grows the depth of our connection with Him, of our knowledge of Him, of our understanding of Him. And so I, I think that, that that's a valid question for us to, to ask ourselves. 
<clears throat> Am I interested in my understanding of God growing? Am I interested in my knowledge of the Almighty being made more perfect, being made more profound, being made more correct? Am I interested in that? Or am I interested in preserving what I have already come to know, sort of celebrating that, keeping that, praying and hoping that others come to the understanding that I have? But let's just stay status quo. I think that if we're honest with ourselves, all of us at times are in one place or the other. The question is, which place, which place are we in most of the time? Which place are we in when we come into the gathering of God's people? We come together, we call this loving God. We, we come and we open His Word. We, uh, we proclaim Him publicly. We sing Him publicly. We, we, we uh, preach and hear His Word. And are we coming together truly with the desire that that Word would further us, would shape us, would mold our understanding of Him? Or do we come with the mindset that I'm going to filter everything I hear through what I already believe? I think it's a challenging question for, for all Christ followers to continually ask ourselves: Am I willing for my understanding of God to be challenged by the Scriptures? Jesus shows us, I think, an example of one who was, of one who, having been raised as He has been raised, he thirsts, he hungers for his knowledge of God to be increased. So a helpful question for us to ask ourselves. So here we see um, Jesus probing and asking, verse 48, when his parents saw him, they were amazed, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great pain. So slight rebuke of Jesus. Interesting, the only account that we have of Jesus' youth includes a rebuke by his mother. We know that Jesus was, was sinless, and we, we wrestle with what would a sinless teenager look like? Um, what would a sinless child look like? We know Jesus was sinless, but we also know that he wasn't, he wasn't this sort of young boy that the whole village, that the whole town of Nazareth just said, Okay, there's, there's Jesus and there's everybody else. There's that kid Jesus and there's everybody else. And we don't know what the deal is with him. He never does anything wrong. <laughs> we know that's not the case because when Jesus begins his public ministry, they, the people who grew, knew him, that grew up with him, were not accepting of him. So we know that he was sinless, but not his sinlessness didn't manifest it itself in such a way that the whole world just looked at him as some kind of non-human. So the only account that we have of Jesus' youth includes a rebuke from his mother. Son, why do you treat me so badly? I'm just You treat us like an old dish rag. Here you are, we're looking for you. You're hiding off in the temple. Verse 49, and he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And we're going to kind of plow that ground just a little bit. So here we have two things that, that, that I want to kind of bring out. First of all, is we see, once again, Luke is talking here about something we could call a divine need. 
comes through all over the place in Luke's gospel, comes through all over the place in all the gospels. It is just this need that Jesus has to do certain things. For example, from Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus says, I must preach the good news. Chapter 9, the Son of Man must suffer. Chapter 19, Zacchaeus, I must go to your house. Chapter 24, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinners. And not just Luke's gospel, the other gospel writers as well. For um, Or here's one more from Luke, Luke 24, everything written about me must be fulfilled. Or from John 4, 4, he had to pass through Samaria. Or John 9, 4, he, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. And over and over, we see this sort of divine compulsion, this need that Jesus must be about his father's business. Here, he says, I must be in my father's house. He is just pressed, compulsed, if you will, to be about his father's will. A good question for us to ask ourselves as well. As a Christ follower, do you struggle with having the, let me put this, Precisely. Do you struggle with having the will to obey? Or maybe a better way to put it is, do you struggle with having the desire to obey? Do you struggle with wanting to obey? Or do you struggle with just actually (coughs) carrying forth your obedience? If you struggle with the desire to obey, then something's very wrong. Jesus' examples for us, the one who is in relationship with the Father, and lives their life in such a way that obedience, disobedience, what, there's a choice. I must be about my Father's will. And as Christ followers, we, of course, do that the same sort of thing very, very imperfectly. But the struggle in our hearts shouldn't be a struggle of desire. It shouldn't be a struggle of, yeah, I, I mean, I kind of, I kind of like obeying God, but then I kind of like sinning too. That shouldn't be our struggle. Our struggle should be carrying forth what our heart wants, which is to please God, to love God with our actions, to love God with our life, to love God with our thoughts, to love God with our emotions. Now, really, I wish I could just do that like my heart wants to do that. But we shouldn't constantly have this sort of dichotomy in our hearts of which way do I want to go, to the world or to God? I'm not sure. So Jesus is is the man with a divine need. And his need, in this case, he must be in his father's house. But also we see that Jesus speaks here clearly that he, he has an understanding that his relationship with the father is of a different nature than the rest of the world. We ask the question sometimes, did, did the boy Jesus know that he was Messiah? Did he know that he was Messiah? I don't know. I mean, certainly the six-month-old Jesus didn't. The 12-year-old Jesus, I think that probably he has, he has, he clearly has an understanding that his relationship with the Father is not the same as Mary's. Well, don't you think Mary would have, Joseph would have even told him? Certainly they would have, and certainly they even remembered, and they, they, but it's been 12 years. It's been 12 years since the shepherds and since the, the virgin birth and everything. Twelve years is a long time. And a lot of water passes under the bridge in twelve years. 
We've talked before about how Mary's faith was affirmed as the shepherds came and said the same thing that Mary was told. And so, and so she treasured those in her, in her heart. She was like, yes, yes, that affirms what, what I know. But now it's 12 years later. And so certainly Jesus, Jesus has been treated by his parents in some way that's different from maybe his other brothers and sisters. But Jesus, at the very least, we can be certain of the fact that Jesus has an understanding at this point that God is not in the same relationship with him as he is with the rest of the world. Now, perhaps he also understands that he's here to do something about that at this point. I don't know. We're going to, be, we're going to get done with this passage and say, I, I'm still not exactly sure of everything this passage is or is not saying to us. But in whatever case, he understands his relationship with God is something of a very, very different nature. He has a knowledge of his father now. Um, Interestingly enough, the passage proves not only Jesus' divinity, but it also proves his humanity. One passage that proves both. He has a relationship with God that is different. But he also grows. I think the two of those ideas together give us, give us a clear understanding that this is a Messiah that is not God pretending to be a man. This is God and man fully joined so that Jesus is fully human and fully the Son of God. Jesus possessed the full nature of humanity and He also possessed the full nature of divinity. Both of those together in Him. And so I think we see both of those here. Now one last thing. By the way, that is the main point of the first two chapters. What we just read right there is the culmination of the first two chapters. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God. I must be in my Father's house or about my Father's business. The whole first two chapters, Luke is making the case to Theophilus. He's presenting the witnesses. But one last thing I want to kind of point out to us, and that is not the main point of the passage, but I want to leave us with this one. I want to notice the contrast between verse 49, I'm sorry, verse 48 and verse 49 and verse 50. There's a tremendous contrast here. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house so we can't miss that contrast your father and i have been looking for you i was in my father's house jesus has a clear understanding that his father is not joseph joseph is his adopted father so he understands he is the son of god and so we see that contrast here but we also see that mary and joseph don't understand they don't get it jesus struggles with this his entire ministry his one of the ways I think that Jesus suffers and anguishes in his ministry is the fact that so many people so often don't understand. His disciples don't understand. The people don't understand. His family doesn't understand. In this case, his own mother, who gave birth to him as a virgin, doesn't understand. So he struggles with their lack of understanding about him and about his identity and his ministry. And yet, look at what Jesus does. And they did not understand the saying that was spoken to him. 
And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Jesus submits to those who do not understand. Do we struggle with submitting to those whom we see as inferior? We usually don't have a big problem submitting when the one we're submitting to is superior, superior in knowledge or superior in education, superior in experience, superior in skills, superior in position, you know, whatever it may be. We usually don't struggle a whole lot, most of us don't, with submitting when the, the one submitted to is superior. What we don't like is submitting to the inferior. Where it really gets hard is when the boss doesn't know as much as we know. When we can do a better job than the one who is telling us what... To, that's where we really struggle. Submission is not easy for us, but it's particularly hard when we feel like we shouldn't because we feel like we're the ones that should be submitted to. And so Jesus, of course, is our example for submission. Philippians 5, I'm sorry, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. He is our example for submission. And I want you to see just how perfect of an example he is because here he's even the example of submitting to that which is clearly inferior. Mary doesn't get it. She doesn't understand. And yet, Luke could not have been more explicit. He went to Nazareth and was submissive to them. May God help us to have, as Paul will say to the Philippians, the mind of Christ. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and message from the Garden Fellowship. The purpose of the Garden Fellowship Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. We hope you were blessed by this message. You can learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash garden fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org.